0: This Star News Media Podcast is presented by North Chase Family Dentistry. Open evenings, Saturdays, and they probably take your insurance. Visit them on the web at northchasefamilydentistry.com. And by Tidewater Heating and Air Conditioning, servicing all major brands with highly trained technicians who are the best the industry has to offer, serving Wilmington and surrounding communities for more than 40 years. Learn more at TidewaterAC.com. And by Cape Fear Pharmacy, a local, independent pharmacy providing health care and compounding services customized to meet our patients' needs. Visit CapefearPharmacy.com today and let us take care of you. In the 2013 romantic drama Safe Haven, a young woman fleeing the grip of her abusive husband seeks refuge in a small, coastal North Carolina town named Southport. The town has long been featured in films, most prominently in ones like Crimes of the Heart and I Know What You Did Last Summer. But this turn on the big screen was different. The community's quaint coastal lifestyle, waterfront streets lined with historic homes, and miles of crystal water, embraced Nicholas Sparks' story of new beginnings like a big hug. From the minute the credits rolled, audiences had fallen in love, not only with the central romance, but also its setting, immediately bringing national and global attention to Southport like it had never seen before. In the course of a single summer, the historic town at the southern tip of the Cape Fear had become a destination for thousands, who probably couldn't have found it on a map before seeing the film. But what's not represented in Safe Haven is the town's deep-rooted history, which goes back long before it appeared in the pages of Sparks' book. Southport has been a vital piece in the history and development of the Cape Fear region since before the Revolutionary War, when it was first envisioned as a mighty fort, standing vigilant over the river to protect the area from any seafaring threats. The might of that fort never quite came to be, but the resulting town that would spring up around it originally known as Smithville, proved the area did have a purpose. Its story charts the rise of the Cape Fear, the birth of freedom, at least for some, and the eventual division of the states. It features landmark names in the founding of this area, and was even the final stand for at least one pirate. But in time the coastal oasis of Southport would become an incredibly potent example of the promise and perils of the American dream. This is Cape Fear Unearthed, the podcast exploring the persisting legends, historical oddities, and landmark stories of southeastern North Carolina. As always, I'm your host, Hunter Ingram, and I'm a reporter with the Star News here in Wilmington. This week on the show, we're going to take a look at how Southport grew out of a colonial military fort to become one of North Carolina's most desired destinations. Like I mentioned at the top of this episode, Safe Haven truly put the town on the map for so many people across the country but for those in this region and this state, Southport has always been recognized as a jewel in the coast crown. For history lovers, it's also offered a treasure trove of stories, from its small beginnings to its role as a fortification in every major war in this country's history to its unrealized dream to become a large port city like its neighbor to the north In Wilmington. It went through name changes, weathered the coast's most brutal storms, and even bore witness to the fall of the pirate steed Bonnet. In other words, Southport is far more than you may have seen on the big screen, or even on a quick drive through town. If only you dig a little deeper. As always, I will share this story as it has been passed down through history and told through legend. And with our story this week, I'll take us up to the aftermath of the Civil War. And then I'll bring in someone from the community with knowledge of our tale to take us through Southport in the 20th century and explore whether or not history can be trusted. And this week's guest is Pat Kirkman a long-time member of the Southport Historical Society. So sit back and settle in for this episode of Cape Fear Unearthed as we revisit the story of Fort Johnston and how Smithville became Southport. (music) The story of Southport doesn't begin as most municipal origin stories do. Before the founding of the Cape Fear, the area in this particular corner of the region was pretty much known for one thing. The last stand of the pirate, Steed Bonnet. We've told Bonnet's story on the podcast before in our Money Island episode. But it's worth noting here since he is one of the few pirates that actually have claim to a story in this region, despite tons of rumors that it was infested with these bandits of the sea. Legend goes that Bonnet was known as the Gentleman's Pirate for having started his career of lawlessness by using his wealth in Barbados to buy a pirate ship and its crew. He had moderate success pillaging and plundering on the high seas and was said to have been the right-hand man of Blackbeard for a time. He was even pardoned by the governor of North Carolina in 1718, but the temptation of piracy was too great for Bonnet. He returned to his criminal ways just in time to make a pit stop on a small creek near present-day Southport to careen his ship, a process where it is tipped on one side to clean the bottom of the hull for smoother sailing. Unbeknownst to Bonnet, the governor of South Carolina had authorized Colonel William Rett to go pirate hunting, and he had caught wind of Bonnet's pit stop. Meeting on the waters of the Cape Fear, The two men waged war against one another, with Bonnet and his men ultimately surrendering. He was taken to Charleston and executed on charges of piracy on December 10, 1718. His body was left to hang in the town and used as an example for what would happen to anyone who followed in his path. This is the most action that history books have recorded for the area that would become Southport before it caught the attention of the royal authority of the colony in the early 1740s. But the future coastal town's land wasn't initially chosen as the next great residential settlement along the Cape Fear River. Instead, it was chosen for its military advantages. By this point, Brunswick Town, the area's first permanent settlement, was well into its second decade as the region's sturdiest political power and commercial port along the river. At Port Brunswick, all vessels that entered the river were made to stop for inspection, bringing all kinds of people and opportunities to its shores. Simultaneously, Wilmington, which had been incorporated by 1740, established itself as a rival to those opportunities and had already begun siphoning off influence from Brunswick Town. But as more people moved to the region and the colony's royal authority only grew more reliant on these two coastal towns, the Cape Fear suddenly found itself on the radar of Britain's enemies, particularly. Spain. Possession of the New World had long been a tug-of-war between European powers, but with Britain's dominance only growing as the colonies flourished, Spain was getting desperate to reassert itself in the conversation, so to speak. The threat of a Spanish invasion, or at the very least small attacks coming upriver and catching Brunswick Town and Wilmington off guard, was very real for the residents of the Cape Fear at the time. The North Carolina colony's leadership knew it needed better protection for its growing coastal epicenters, so it set out to find the best place to build a fort that could keep a watchful eye over the water and be there to defend the Cape Fear should the time come. It was under Royal Governor Gabriel Johnston that a legislative act was passed in April 1745 to formally explore the defensive options of the Cape Fear. When the council convened, they identified a bluff on the west side of the river with a clear vantage point of any traffic coming up and down the waterway. The proposed fortification would be called Johnston's Fort but efforts to get it operational were slow-moving at first. Enslaved labor was brought in to build the fort within a few years. But well before construction could be completed, Johnston's worst fear came to pass. On September 3, 1748, a pair of Spanish ships entered into the river and headed for the fort intent on capturing its slave labor and moving upriver. The men weren't working that day, so they proceeded to attack Brunswick Town, an assault the townspeople never saw coming. Many of them fled with only what they could carry once the Spanish started bombarding the town, with some reports saying that residents used the unfinished fort as a hideout. Within three days, a local militia led by William Dry and others in the region pushed the Spanish out of town, and even sunk one of their ships in the river, proving the first generation of Cape Fear residents weren't going to let their new home go without a fight. But the Spanish attack only reinforced Johnson's motivations to get the fort done quickly, so as not to put the region in the same vulnerable position again. By April 1749, Fort Johnston was complete, but considered to be wildly underwhelming. The small compound's initial resources were limited and described as little more than a few rusty cannons and barely enough men to operate them. If Fort Johnston was going to be able to show any kind of intimidation and force, it needed to be fully embraced by the royal authority. After Johnston's death in 1754, his successor, Arthur Dobbs, who made his home at Brunswick Town, would work to secure more funding and artillery for the fort. He would also enlist dry to help build it out with sturdier materials but they didn't have much luck in strengthening it. Further crippling Fort Johnston's intended importance to the region was the 1761 hurricane that battered the coast so brutally it opened up New Inlet several miles upriver, meaning vessels no longer had to pass the fort and its small arsenal to gain access. During this time, to make use of the still run-down fort, the colony made it a quarantine station for all vessels before they could dock at Port Brunswick with cargo. As a full-on rebellion crept closer in the colonies, the fractured allegiances to the crown and to the growing patriot cause would lead to another period of changing leadership at the fort. Governor Dobbs had appointed John Darwimple as its first commander, but after his death the colony's next governor, William Tryon, handed the reins over to Robert Howe, a local politician for whom Southport's central road, Howe Street, is named. He was able to give the fort some much-needed tender love and care, continuing to repair many of its then-decrepit features and increasing its troop presence to about two dozen. But North Carolina's final royal leader, Governor Josiah Martin despised Howe, and with good reason. Howe, who he removed as commander when he took power, was quietly among the leading patriots planning the local rebellion. Governor Martin would rely heavily on the fort in the coming years, especially on the doorstep of the war when he fled the capital in New Bern and took up residence at the fort out of fear for his safety as had been the case when Brunswick Town was the home of Governors Dobbs and Tryon, Martin's presence at Fort Johnston effectively made it the seat of power for the Loyalist government. But he wasn't too happy about his time at the fort or its conditions. He complained to the king that it was a small, weak place that he reportedly described as, quote, a most contemptible thing. Fit neither for place of arms nor an asylum for the friends of the government. End quote. It wouldn't really matter what he thought, though, because on July 19, 1775, three days after he wrote that scathing assessment, a Patriot militia of about 500 men, including Howe, burned the fort and all its buildings. Martin hit offshore on a ship called Cruiser, watching as his jurisdiction shrunk with each passing day. Fort Johnston would play no major role in the Revolution, except as the occasional stopover for troops. And after the war, its influence was still all but non-existent. It had an assigned commander, but their role was mostly to oversee the river pilots, who built small cottages around the fort to be readily available for any jobs that arose in guiding ships through the treacherous shoals at the mouth of the river and all the way to Wilmington. In a funny kind of way, the eventual idea to build a town around the fort was born out of exactly what Southport would become known for, a really good vacation. The story of Joseph Potts' drive to found a town at the mouth of the Cape Fear has been preserved in the works of historians like Bill Reeves and in a book by Susan Carson called Joshua's Dream. Their research tells of Potts arriving in Wilmington after the Revolutionary War and becoming quite the man about town, holding jobs as lawyer, broker, And merchant. The story goes that in 1786, Potts became severely ill, and on the advice of his friend Captain John Brown, he ventured down to Fort Johnston to get some much needed relaxation and fresh sea air, which they thought could be a holistic treatment for his ailment. After a few nights spent camping with the river pilots, and getting to know the area, Potts returned with not only a clean bill of health, but a new plan. Around the fort, he envisioned a thriving new town that benefited from the virtues that initially drew its colonial creators to the land. Plenty of room to grow, easy access to the most important commercial trade route in the state, unmatched breezes coming off the river, and the kind of waterfront views that this coast is known for. It had all the makings of the Cape Fear's next hot spot. There was only one problem. By 1790, Potts was desperate enough to live by the waters he had found so healing that he uprooted his family and moved to his proposed town. They initially lived in the upstairs loft of a river pilot's house. On the advice of his friend and Wilmington politician John Husk, Potts began circulating a petition in Brunswick County that could be brought before the state legislature to trigger a vote to establish the town. But General Benjamin Smith, a former resident of Brunswick Town, and a lauded general of the Revolution, refused to bring it before the elected body. In his research, Reeves said it was because Smith likely sided with the river pilots, who had plans to build their own homes on the land, and would lose the opportunity should the town be approved. But Potts wasn't defeated by the setback. He and Captain Brown the man who had initially introduced him to the land, had homes built in Wilmington and brought piece by piece on a barge downriver to be placed along the waterfront. He could see the town in his head, and if the state's leadership wasn't going to buy into his vision on paper, well, he'd just have to show them. Benjamin Smith has popped up in a few of our previous episodes, having been quite the figure in the years after the Revolution. He took a bullet in a duel with his cousin in 1805, which stayed in his body for the rest of his life. He is one of the few still-visible graves at Brunswick Town, and he donated the ten acres of land on Baldhead Island that would be the site of the region's first lighthouse in 1792. That same year, Smith must have been feeling generous, because Potts, an influential Wilmington resident Charles Gause, managed to convince him of their plan, and he helped get the legislation for the town passed. Although commonly called the Fort, the village was officially named Smithville, for Benjamin Smith an ironic twist, considering his initial hesitation in supporting it. In her book, Susan Carson states that the name of the town could have also been approved by his political enemies because they thought the small town was likely to fail and it would make him look bad. Regardless of the intention, Smith, Gauls, and Potts along with General Robert Howe's son, were among those appointed as its first commissioners. The first map included 100 half-acre lots, available at 40 shillings apiece. Potts bought a few of them, finally getting his home on the west bank of the river. By 1805, the town was officially big enough to be incorporated and it grew steadily from there. The U.S. government was granted ownership of the Fort Johnston ruins under the condition it build a new fort. Ahead of the War of 1812, the townspeople also rallied for those renovations, so the fort could protect the town should British forces off the coast push upriver. Upgrades were made but the fort would still remain poorly manned, as it always had been. A number of the homes built in town in those early years were summer escapes for the wealthier set in Wilmington. But gradually, Smithville began to get the necessary infrastructure to be a functional year-round community, including a schoolhouse, courthouse, and jail. The establishment of the latter two would allow the town to become the county seat of power in 1808, a decision that angered those in the far-off western part of the county so much that they petitioned to be recognized as their own government, thus forming the new Columbus County. Boarding houses also helped bolster the town's profile allowing people to visit the community and take home with them stories of its hospitality, fishing opportunities, and cool sea breezes. By 1820, Carson said the population was about 300, which doubled during the summer months. It was in those warmer months that Smithville launched some of its most timeless traditions. Its most famous dates back to 1795, when the growing community first celebrated the birthday of America on July 4th with a community dinner at the site of the fort. It became an increasingly elaborate and sought-after tradition for the town, one that would eventually be named North Carolina's official 4th of July festival. Due to the coronavirus... 2020 was the first year since 1795 that the festival wasn't celebrated in some form. Although Smithville's namesake would go on to be governor in 1810, Benjamin Smith died in the town, penniless and deeply in debt, in 1826. His body was buried in an unmarked grave at the time, to ensure that it wasn't claimed as his final payment, as was the custom of the time. He would later be reinterred at Brunswick Town. By the mid-1800s, Smithville had become a prominent fishing village and coastal town. But like every city, town, and community in the country, all of that progress took a backseat to the Civil War. Even before war was declared with the first shots at Fort Sumter in South Carolina in April 1861, the residents of Smithville had once again recognized their vulnerability. Like had been the case with the War of 1812, they knew their place at the mouth of the river meant they would be among the first to face any enemy that arrived by sea. At the time, Fort Johnston had a meager assignment of federal troops, as did Fort Caswell, which had been constructed across the water on Oak Island. In 1860, as more southern states started to secede from the Union, a militia out of Smithville, known as the Smithville Guard, along with the Cape Fear Minutemen, requested that North Carolina Governor John Ellis Let them take control of the forts to ensure what little protection they could offer was on the side of the future Confederates. Their request was denied because North Carolina was still part of the Union at that time, and seizing control would be considered an insurrection. But eager for the fight ahead, they took the forts anyway in April 1861. After the war began, Ellis officially stationed regiments at the forts. Even more than it had been in 1812, the Civil War marked the first time that Smithville was a real war town. Not only were soldiers stationed at Johnston training for the front lines, but the river pilots, who had effectively been the town's first residents, suddenly became the blockade runners, who skillfully dodged the federal blockade offshore to make sure they could get supplies to the Confederacy. In Carson's book, their work is described as heroic, and they were treated as such in town. But the war effort in Smithville was not limited to the men. Being a small coastal community, the residents took care of each other, and that didn't stop just because war had overtaken their lives. The women of the town were known to often cook meals for the men stationed at the fort, many of whom would write home about the hospitality they had been shown. Although life had been allowed to continue on for those who remained in Smithville during the war, there was still a sense of fear and uncertainty instilled in the residents left waiting for news from the front lines. Dispatches that they could only get from the fort's communication lines and people who happened to be passing through town. An incident in 1864, which saw Federal Lieutenant William Cushing quietly raid the town in an attempt to seize the fort's commander, had shaken Smithville's residents, who suddenly felt unsafe in their own town. That was hardly uncommon during wartime. But for this small community that had never felt truly protected by the fort around which they were built, this invasion meant something. When Fort Fisher fell in January 1865, the residents of Smithville watched from their roofs and from their front lawns as smoke rose from the battlefield. Accounts from the day even recall feeling the booms of the cannons as the armies clashed downriver. The Civil War was a real turning point for Smithville because in many ways, it suddenly had to figure out what it wanted to be in this new America that emerged on the other side of the war. Joshua Potts's dream of a beautiful fishing village That drew people in with its stunning views and healing breezes had come true. But now, its residents had to look toward the future. One of the first major steps came in 1887 when Smithville was renamed Southport. An intentional rebranding meant to position the town as something more than a sleepy fishing village. For this new town of Southport, it was the next century that would be its most defining era. Joining me now to help continue to tell the story of Smithville and Southport is a woman who knows it very well, uh, Pat Kirkman, who has been with the Southport Historical Society for 24 years. Thanks for being here.
1: Thank you, Hunter. It's great to be with you, and it's one thing I can always do is talk about Southport.
0: <laughs> That's perfect. Well, I want to tell people first that, as we've done with recent episodes, we've kind of taken the podcast on the road, and so you and I are actually sitting in the old jail in Southport that was uh, built in 1904.
1: Right. We sure are.
0: Yes. And it's, um, it's... It's it's a
1: museum now. It's
0: a museum now, a museum that you can normally visit uh, when... We're not under quarantine. Um, but I would encourage everyone, as, as I do with all of the, the episodes, to come visit these places when they are back open. This museum is just chocked full with things that, you know, if you love history, this is kind of the place to be.
1: Yes, do come. We'd love to see you.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so I want to start out with kind of telling our listeners how I've done this episode a little different. I, I've used our scripted portion, which they've just listened to, to talk about how Fort Johnston became Smithville, how Smithville kind of blossomed out of Fort Johnson. And then I take us up to the Civil War right before it became Southport. And I wanted to speak with you in our conversation to kind of get a good idea of how this town transformed in the years after the Civil War, because that was a really revolutionary time for what Southport was and what it wanted to become. And so I want to speak a little bit now about what did Southport look like after the Civil War? I mean, it seemed to continue to grow.
1: It did, Hunter. And um, uh, to be very honest, Southport did not suffer too much during the Civil War, Uh, mainly because we uh, are located where we are located. So we weren't on the pathway of uh, of, uh, many skirmishes or fighting or that sort of thing. However, the main contribution that we made and I'm sure you Uh, that we've talked about already was the blockade runners Mm -hmm. that uh, moved in and out of the harbor here uh, at the end of the Cape Fear River. Mm -hmm. So um, that was very important, and because they were running the the blockades, the folks here in uh, Smithville uh, did not suffer too much because, um, you know, those... Uh, boat captains are going to leave a little at home on the table before they take it up to Wellington or whatever.
0: They took care of their people. They did
1: and uh, so uh, as a result of that even though of course the whole country uh, was suffering during that time the the look and the feel of the place did really not change that much uh, during the war. But now after the war of course as the whole country was trying to um, revive itself the the carpet baggers came down, uh, reconstruction started up, and of course there was some of that going on here um, in, in Southport. The main thing uh, was just trying to get back to a normal life, and normal life for uh, the, uh, the folks in Smithville. fishing uh, was making a living for their uh, families. And so the fort itself Actually, did was not a very active fort ever. No. Uh, so um, after uh, it wasn't like there were always soldiers camped around the fort or anything like that. Uh, after even after the Civil War, but we did begin to um, see a time of rejuvenation, uh, or just maybe the first juvenation, yeah. uh, rather than rejuvenation, rejuvenation for our little town, um, and that was building up the town, becoming uh, more interested in what we're going to do to make this town prosper. Of course, up the river, 20-some miles, was Wilmington, who kind of overpowered the Cape Fear region uh, with its uh, money, politics, and influence. And uh, what was left here for us to do in Smithville was to try to see if we could overcome that a little
0: bit. (laughs) Assert some type of dominance, you yes, know, where you yes. are, yeah.
1: And because we uh, have uh, basically the, the largest natural harbor in North Carolina mm-hmm. sitting right here at the foot of the river, uh, we felt like that this needed to be the place uh, that would be a big court here in the South. And so after Civil War days and, and Reconstruction and kind of getting our feet back on the ground, That was what we were looking forward
0: to. Well, in this whole time, Southport has been, as you said, a fishing village. It's been this sleepy town. But after the Civil War and as people kind of try to decide what that next era of America is going to look like, especially here in Southport, you're you're right, they do start looking at a port. They start looking at things like a railroad. And those ideas... And almost like those aspirations, it seems like they carried that motivation to continue to build up Southport through the next decades.
1: They did. And and even further than that, um, the commercial, what are we going to do here uh, commercially to uh, make money besides fish? Uh, And that was important. One of the things that we especially wanted to do was get the railroad here. You know, after the Civil War, one of the main things that happened in our country was the connection of the railroad to make it a a transcontinental railroad. So goods could be moved from one coast all the way to the other. And if you were a small town or a place along that uh, uh, intercontinental railroad, you needed a spur of that railroad to come to your town or to your area to pick up any goods, whether it be uh, corn for feed for the cows or uh, coal or whatever, Uh, goods coming off of the ocean, it needed to be picked up by a train car. So that was the main thing we were trying to do here after the Civil War, was get the railroad barons interested in building a spur down from Wilmington uh, down here to the coast. And then we were going to sneak in and become
0: a bigger (laughs) port. (laughs) Well, that was the thing of, you know, that was the whole reason to rebrand Southport. Smithville, while a very nice name, was a token and a remnant of the past. It was of a time before the Civil War, before all of this growth. And Southport, just by its name, has has an assertion to it that's like, you know, we're here, Absolutely. this is what we're doing. And so this was a real intention for the town.
1: It was an intention. In the 1880s, 1887 is the year that we changed the name of the town from Smithfield to Southport. Mm -hmm. Now, how did that come about? Well, we were busy trying to become the Port of the South. So they thought and they thought and thought, what could we name this town that would look like a big important place Mm -hmm. uh, that people would want to do commercial business with, Mm -hmm. because that was our goal. And so I'm sure there was a woman on the board <laughs> <laughs> who said, I've got it. If we want to be the port of the South, why don't we just become Southport? Mm-hmm. And here we are there, today. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, one thing I, w- I thought was interesting reading uh, Joshua's Dream, which is Susan Carson's book, that you guys rely on a lot. It's, it's a real resource here in the town for telling the story. I thought it was interesting that some people were hesitant. To take on that name you know there were places that didn't change their names or or their addresses or stuff like that for a few years because they were holding on to what Southport
1: was. Well that's true and you know that old um, adage ain't nobody gonna tell me to change. <laughs> <laughs> well that's but, the thing yeah. But that wasn't it completely I think for the most part of the town realized that if this is going to help us get get the railroad that was the mm-hmm. main thing get the railroad well, we did get the railroad, railroad, but it was not until 1911.
0: And it was, it was with too the late. Wilmington, Brunswick Southern Railroad. Um, it was one of the it was one of the railroad lines that really popped up after the Civil yes. War, trying to to be part of this 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 intercontinental railroad movement. But why was it too late? You know, it did come here, and you saw such a big celebration in 1911. There was the opening of the station on Howe Street, and and all of this. But why did it not? Come at the right time
1: what we wanted here was there's ships coming in off of the Atlantic mm-hmm. to stop here unload uh, reload onto uh, train cars and take off all over the country but the ships were already going up to Wilmington what kept it from stopping here and becoming or even from the railroad getting here soon enough was the money the influence of politics was all up the river mm-hmm. in in Wilmington and we were too small and too few in number and too uh, mm, weak in power to make it happen in the late 1800s when we really needed it to happen. And it was not until after 1900 and only even to 1911 that we finally got that railroad spur completed so that the train could come here. By then, everything was going to Wilmington. Yeah. But we had an ace in the hole. What was that? That was the river pilots. And the river pilots have been here since the mid-seventeen hundreds. They
0: were the first residents essentially.
1: Absolutely. They helped to establish this town. And they were the ones that could get those ships up to Wellington coming in off of the ocean, even if they didn't stop here to offload.
0: Mm-hmm. And if
1: they went on up to Wilmington, they had to have a pilot on board because of the uh, the dangers of the coast here, uh, all along the coast of North Carolina. You know, we're called a uh, a state, it looks like a jigsaw puzzle Mm -hmm. on the coast with all our barrier islands, and they were right here with Oak Island and and the bald head. So uh, a pilot was necessary to take it up river, and what better place to be than right here at the mouth of the Cape Fear. Mm -hmm. Today, still, 2020, we have the Cape Fear pilots here Mm -hmm. in Southport. Old Smithville, who are still taking those ships up to Wilmington every day. So even though we didn't get the ships to stop here, we can get them to where they need to go. Right.
0: Well, that's perfect. <laughs> well, that's, that's interesting to see that through all of this attempt to you know, invent what Smithville and Southport was and then reinvent itself, it was the river pilots that were here all along that really helped hold the significance and importance of Southport to the entire region. Because I think when you look at all of the things that this region has, has done and all the things that have popped up from Brunswick Town to Wilmington to everything, everything has a role to play, and everything's interconnected. And Southport wanting to be you know, a port, while admirable, it seems that what was already here was what was going to make it important.
1: And you know what was already here? I have to say it.
0: Say it. Salubrious breezes. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You see that that description all the way back to Joshua Potts. Absolutely. Voss. And I think that's what a lot of people come here for now. I mean, and that's
1: what happened in the late 1800s. Our, our building boom was due to the salubrious breezes and the wonderful place that this is for a resort, for a vacation. Even for a day trip from Wilmington on a steamer, you can still come down and enjoy Uh, being right here uh, on the river and uh, being able to look over to the Atlantic and not go over. And uh, so that that became the aim, I think, after it looked like the uh, railroad and the big port system were kind of not going to happen. Uh, Then it became, let's be more concentrated on being a wonderful place to come to. Plus we had another Ace in the hole, so to speak, and that was that we were the county seat for 180 years, Mm -hmm. 170 years, from uh, uh, 1808 to 1978, Mm -hmm. when we went to Bolivia (laughs) as the um, county seat for Brunswick County. So that also brought people here. So hotels, boarding houses, restaurants, that sort of thing were important here for a long time. And the steamships, stopped right down here um, at the uh, at the wharf, at the pier, uh, going between Wilmington and Charleston and other places as well.
0: Well, and we've told the story on the podcast before, but of uh, Captain John Harper's Steamer Wilmington. His main route was Wilmington to Southport and Southport back, and, exactly. and he lived here and all of this stuff. And so there was that, even in 1896 when he acquired the Steamer Wilmington, there was that recognition of, People in Wilmington having a desire to come here. Uh,
1: 1793, when they sold those first 100 lots uh, to establish the town here, we call them Joshua Potts and his hundred lots. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> that the Wilmingtonians were buying mm-hmm. these lots, and with the uh, eye to perhaps making this a um, you know second home, vacation home, getaway place, and many of them did build houses here. And they came just on occasion. And so that, that was uh, one of the uh, first things that happened here. People were recognizing the beauty and mm-hmm. uh, the enjoyment of yeah. being here. If I sound like I'm with the Chamber of Commerce, well... <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, what's interesting is this town's history is so tied to what it is now. I mean, it it has held on to that that lineage, that heritage in in such a really organic way because even from the beginning, it was very much focused on being a place that people wanted to come. One thing that I I found really interesting in in researching this episode was it's always been this tight-knit community. It's always uh, been—I was reading in, in Susan's book, and she mentions that at the time that there was that propulsion, that desire to get a railroad here, it made people clean the streets more and mow their yards or not mow their yards, but, you know, better landscaping, stuff like that, because they wanted this town to be desirable for people looking at it as their next possible place to bring a railroad or a business. And even though the railroad didn't come to pass like they wanted it to, it instilled in them that desire to keep Southport beautiful. And that goes all the way back to, and I think a lot of people who have who've been here before will know of Whitler's Bench yes, um, yeah. down there by the river, where people would go and sit and they'd talk about ways that Southport could be better. And it seems like that was something that has been, that community aspect has been a big part of the history the entire time.
1: It has. It has. And one of the big movers and shakers during the uh, late 1800s, even up until her death, in the um, uh, early 1900s was Miss Kate Stewart, um, a single lady on the big boarding house down on the waterfront, mm-hmm. became well known all over the state. People would say, oh, you've got to stop at Kate Stewart's house, and she was a property owner in, in town. They're, the very place we're sitting right now, in the old Brunswick County jail that was built in 1904, this property was Miss Kate Stewart's property. And uh, she either sold it or gave it to—I um, can't remember now—the county in order to build this jailhouse. So she, she, along with many other people, did have a heart for the community and mm-hmm. wanting to make it much more. Absolutely, to a fishing village.
0: Absolutely, and she was considered a hero because she saved a young woman one time. Yes, and yes. and I thought it was a nice little anecdote that. Because someone, she saved a captain's daughter or something yes, like that, yeah. they would all wave to her when they came by. It was like a rite yes. of passage. Yeah,
1: there was always a, a, s- a certain signal or two of the horn of the uh, steamships that they went by uh, on the Clyde line. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well,
0: the, the whole intention, it sounds like, was to really build out Southport to something really big. But one thing that's maintained over all these years is it's... Quaintness, quaintness, in a way, yes. in a good way. You know, sometimes I think that word is used in as is, is a way to put something down, but yes. I think here it, it's a really rich term in describing what you see here. You see a lot of people walking around. You see a lot of just community, yes. in a way.
1: People like to come here because it is a little different. Mm-hmm. It's walkable. You can walk all over Southport and have lunch, uh, take a ferry ride, go back to Wilmington or wherever. uh and, in fact, one of our past presidents of the Society wrote a book, uh, Larry Meisel, uh, before we were quaint. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that uh, being quaint and having quaintness um, helps sell South Pole yeah, right now. It does. Absolutely. And uh, we're, we're glad for that.
0: Absolutely. And well one thing that I, I think is really interesting is it began as, as something more of just kind of a military strategy. It began yes. because it yeah. could overlook the river and, and you could get to the ocean if you needed to. and. But the fort just never really took hold. It, it just never it did. never had the men, it never had the support. And then as you get into the twentieth century, eighteen hundreds and then the twentieth century, it just kind of gets scaled back even more. They start taking the cannons to different places. They start um, removing the men who were stationed here. And now it's it, it's just the the officers' quarters that remains. That's right. But it, it's a big part of this town. You have to walk past it if it's you're on the Sure. Is.
1: And I would say that for Fort Johnston, um, the most activity that uh, the fort saw in its history was probably during World War I. Mm -hmm. Uh, There were more men uh, coming and going here, and it's basically served as a muster station uh, for a lot of its history, where people, uh, men in the area in North Carolina, would be assigned to come here to pick up their uniforms and their papers and then go off somewhere else. Um, and then, but there was never really any formal or that sort of thing going on. It was
0: a, stop, it was a stopover yeah, for a lot was, of people. It was,
1: and it was never really uh, powerfully manned mm-hmm. with officers or, or uh, soldiers. But it brought it brought prosperity. It did, and then of course when they opened up Caswell, three miles across, that was a boom to the city as well, and uh, the town really grew after Caswell started uh, functioning after the 1830s and uh, through the Civil War. And so there has been more going on um, consistently out on Caswell as far as military uh, functions are mm-hmm. concerned as they were here in Fort Johnston.
0: It still has the distinction of being involved or at least active during all of these wars. and and, and so it might not have had a huge presence, but it definitely was something that was considered part of the arsenal it didn't have a powerful arsenal yes. but it was part of the arsenal yes. and so that
1: that you know gives it a distinction right. right now we have on the lawn of our garrison our Fort johnston a fallen down weather tower you
0: do yes
1: <laughs> this past february just a, a just kind of a little freaky storm Knocked it down had been up there for over a hundred years, and that was part of the weather bureau mm-hmm. uh that came here to use this uh fort uh, as uh, headquarters um in after world war one and and on up through World War two and they needed it for uh, tracking weather, giving reports out there. so it's it has had a presence. You're right.
0: It, it looks real sad right now. Yeah. Uh, it's, 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 it's it's to be to be metal. It fell in such a an interesting way that almost makes it look like it was just popsicle sticks it can
1: almost be artistic
0: yeah it is it almost does look like (laughs) that way
1: but there are um rumblings that we may replace it we may not we're now we're in the time of covid we don't know what's going to happen with anything exactly
0: i agree (laughs) we are sitting in a museum that hasn't been open for months and so you really don't know what's going to happen well one thing that i I do want to go back to uh this takes us back a little farther uh but one question i think people in Southport always get is about pirates. It's a question that I get about the show all the time. It's a question that historians get. Uh, but Southport did have at least a small run in with a pirate named Steed Bonnet, who we have actually mentioned on the show before, but I wanted to bring his story back up just because since we're here, um, there's, there's actually a monument to Bonnet's Creek because of the significance. One thing that I think anyone in Southport or anyone who works with history in this town, in this region is gonna get is that interest in piracy. Um, there's all these stories about them coming to Wilmington and coming all these places, but those are stories. You know, yes. there there are a lot of assumptions that pirates were around, so maybe they came through this area. One thing that always kind of gets lost in translation is that the age of piracy was well before this region was settled. 1718 um, yeah. was before Brunswick Town became this mm-hmm. area's first settlement. And so you have to really think about where those two kind of line up. But Steve Bonnet is, is an actual example of piracy in this area and that's why it's important to to really talk about it and, and and own it in a way because that's a part of the coast story wherever you are
1: oh absolutely and we love those yeah. stories that's part of the american fabric that's part of uh, who we were from beginning to end with the many people who've come from so many places in the world to bring their stories with them. Exactly. And just think of ghost stories.
0: <laughs> exactly. And
1: how many of those we can make
0: So up? many <laughs> ghost stories. No, no, no. um, I imagine that this building probably has its oh, own ghost yeah. <laughs> stories. Um, well, one thing I think is interesting, it, it, anyone who comes and visits Southport, I would encourage you to drive past Steve Bonnet's. Um, Bonnets Creek Memorial, because if you look at the creek now, you cannot picture a pirate ship in there. Yeah. Um, it would be very hard to to get even a small yeah. boat in there, and so uh, it's interesting to see how this area's geography has changed as well over time. Yeah. So I want to wrap this up by talking a little bit about how so much of this region is interconnected, and so much of Wilmington and Brunswick Town and Southport and. And, you know, any place in this area really had its role to play like we talked about earlier. And I'm curious, what do you think Southport's legacy is? And what do you think that role is in the Cape Fear story?
1: Well, I think our number one legacy are the Cape Fear pilots because um, they were here early on and they're still here functioning very well and uh, uh, doing their job there. Uh, The other thing is um, uh, the Intracoastal Waterway. Uh, coming from Wilmington well coming all the way from New York all the way to Florida, but right through here through our neighborhood, and we have a uh, a world class marina here in uh, Southport that has brought um, uh, people to live here who mm-hmm. come by on their boats from who knows where and decided to stay here, so that has been an inner uh connecting thing of this region too is um, people boating yeah. to come here. To, to Southport, to Wellington, and to that area. Of course, um, we think about Sunny Point, uh, another military installation uh, that came here in the 1950s, and uh, that's been a very um, important part of Southport's story, as well as um, for the whole area here, being the largest Army weapons depot uh, that we have. And guess where the commandant lived in the garrison of Fort mm-hmm. Johnston. Yeah. So that connects the military history, continuing right up until about 15 years ago or so, that uh, they decided not to keep the fort. Um, it was not held by the government any longer, the government, and given to us, to the city. And now we use it as a museum and as a, a wonderful gathering place. Um, but that had some roots also in uh, in Sunny Point. Oh, and of course, the Fourth of July. I was about to say <laughs> that's
0: that's another example of something that has been able to be held onto over through all these years, through all these wars yes, and all these changes. That has become the city's or the town's trademark.
1: It has, and uh, our first recorded uh, celebration of the Fourth of July was 1795 and every year they did something to celebrate the 4th of July and it continued to grow and grow and uh, from a small town a homemade uh, floats and Mm -hmm. and a parade uh, until it has become of national interest. People come from everywhere Uh, normally when we're functioning properly uh, we have 40 to 50,000 people come for a three-day festival here and as of 1972 um, uh, it became a more or less a, a business, so to speak, uh, a nonprofit uh, group and designated as the official North Carolina celebration place for the 4th of Absolutely. July.
0: And I mentioned earlier in the episode that this is weirdly the first year that it hasn't been celebrated. Yes. <laughs> it's and so, been very strange. <laughs> yeah, I bet it has, because that has been, like you said, part of the fabric and of this town. Well, and, and I, I want to say this as we wrap up that. I mentioned this at the start of our story, but this town has such a a really unique origin story in this fact that it's not like other municipalities. It has that military base in a time when this area was trying to find its identity. It was trying to find how Brunswick Town and Wilmington were going to coexist and how all of this was going to be maintained during a rebellion. And Fort Johnston really provided the foundation for this and, as you said, is still the centerpiece of this town that has really grown out of it. And that's just incredibly unique, and I think people here own that that unique history uh, proudly. Pat, thank you so much for talking to me about this. I know you said you can talk about Southport, and you really can because you know the history. I mean, a lot of people here embrace the history. and so
1: What's the matter, honey? You
0: don't have another hour or so? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Oh, my gosh. I could have so many hours of talking about this. I, I also think that Southport is one of the examples of stories we've done where people can come see it for themselves. You know, we can talk as much as we want, but they can come to this museum where we're at at the the old jail. They can walk through Old Smithfield Burying Ground, which we just featured on our cemetery episode. And I think it's one of the most beautiful places you can go here and just walk the streets. I mean, a lot of these houses are remnants of a long gone era. And a lot of the things that are here are from its past. And so uh, I, I do think it's one of the examples of where. You and I can have a great conversation, but I think people will also get just as much being here themselves.
1: They will, and, and I encourage folks to come. We'd love to have you come visit us. We have uh, a wonderful visitor center. We have a walking tour that you can put in your hand and read and walk mm-hmm. around. And also, you can um, dial it up on your telephone. Exactly. We have it uh, virtual as well. (laughs)
0: Plenty of self-distance to be had here. You can still learn from it. Good stuff to eat. Exactly. (laughs) I know. I just came down here the other day and ate dinner. So, uh, well, Pat, thank you so much. And again, as we both just said, we'd encourage anyone to come down to Southport and learn more about the history. You know, read Joshua's dream. There's so, I mean, I was just telling you before we came on mic that it's very dense with just how much progress there was and how many little things built out into this town. And so there's a lot more to learn, so I'd encourage people to, to you know, look for some of that themselves. Well,
1: I always say that I wasn't born here, but God knew that I would probably be one of those who would wander away. <laughs> so He saved it until I was an old lady, and now I'm enjoying it immensely. So. <laughs> Southport is my... Uh, My heart's hometown. Thank you for having me.
0: Absolutely. Thank you for coming on the show. That's it for this episode of Cape Fear Unearthed and our look at how Smithville became Southport. Thank you so much for joining me. Check back soon for our next episode when we'll turn to another chapter in our local history book. But until then, please make sure that you're a member of our Facebook group, where listeners can ask questions about our episodes and share their own memories of the region's history. In that group, I post extra content for each episode, and I share all of my coverage of local history for the Star News. You can find that group by searching Cape Fear Unearthed on Facebook. And if you have episode ideas or questions about the show, you can also email me directly at capefearunearthed at gmail.com. And don't forget to sign up for the Cape Fear on Earth newsletter, which goes out every week. In it, I include links to all of our new episodes and any supplemental pictures or videos that I uncover in my research. All delivered right to your inbox. Sign up for that newsletter at starnewsonline.com slash newsletters. As always, you can find a list of all the books, articles, and resources used in researching this podcast in the show notes of each episode. Cape Fear Unearthed was written, edited, and hosted by me, Hunter Ingram. You can find more of my work at StarNewsOnline.com and on Twitter, at Hunter underscore Wesley. Additional editing for the show is done by Adam Fish. This podcast was made possible by listeners and readers like you. Support local journalism and Cape Fear Unearthed by subscribing to the Star News today at starnewsonline.com slash subscribe. And while you're subscribing to things, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcast or wherever you get the show so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, leave us a review, which will help more people find Cape Fear unearthed. Until next time, get out and explore the Cape Fear region on your own. You never know what you might unearth.